Hi, Faith Life. Hello. Nice to see you all. I trust you've enjoyed what's gone before. It's great. Thank you, everyone who's been involved in the worship and in the breaking of bread. And I trust that you've had a good morning so far. So the rest of the morning is with us in our newly decorated kitchen, our nice new wall that we've painted recently. So I hope you like it. If you don't, I'm sorry, because I'm not changing it for a little while anyway. So thank you. I'm going to speak for a little while and then Olive is going to come and speak and then perhaps I'll finish off. So that's where we're going this morning. Well, we'll see what happens if the Spirit moves us differently. Uh, but anyway, I trust that God will speak to you. So um, we'll pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for the word that you've put inside us. I pray now that you would speak to everybody who listens. Lord, I thank you that you know the divergent people that are watching, all their needs, and you are well capable of feeding the 5,000 exactly what they need to eat. So I'm trusting you now that you will feed each person, challenge each person, and each person will grow closer to you as a result of what we say this morning. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay, so I just wonder, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit from the uh, history of Israel in the Old Testament, but I'm just wondering how you feel when you're facing something new, perhaps something you're coming into that you've been preparing for a long time. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a new house, maybe you remember when you were going to school, you've been hearing about it, listening about it, you've been getting ready for a long time. And now you're at the verge of something, something new. And it's easy to feel excited, but also to feel a bit nervous, have a bit of trepidation. That's kind of, um, that's, that, that's, that's the, the human condition, isn't it? And um, often uh, bravery is not feeling really gung-ho, but it's about maybe being a bit trepidatious, if that's a word, but going ahead and doing what's right anyway. I want to look at a time in Israel history when they were coming into something new. Um, and it's the time when uh, they were going to go into the promised land. They've been promised this land. Um, and uh, I want to start this. It's got, I'm going to be starting in Numbers 13, verse 1. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy at the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. So they, they were coming to go into the land that they've been promised. So I'm putting my stand up a little bit so I can look at you and read my notes. Um, they were going to come into the land of Canaan, but God said to them to, to send out spies to, to, to spy the land. But this whole thing about coming into the promised land wasn't just a, a one-hit wonder, as it were. It wasn't just something that had come about even from when they were in, the, the, uh, when they were in Egypt, when they were slaves. It had been something that God had spoken about a long time ago. Genesis 15, 7 to Abraham. So this is the, the, the beginning of time to, to a large degree. He said, I am the Lord God who brought you out from over the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God said to Abraham way back when he was first talking to him, I'm going to give you this land where he was. And I want to read to you from uh, Genesis 15, verses 12 to 20. It's a bit of a chunk, but hopefully it gives you a flavour of what God was saying to Abraham way back. Um, that verse I just quoted, 15.7, when he said, I'm going to give you the land uh, to possess. And Abraham said to him, well, how do I know? How do I know this is going to be? And, and God encourages him to, to bring a sacrifice of birds. You might remember the story of cutting the birds in half. And it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they should come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, 
to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All those little lights there. I want you to bear those in mind because they'll come into the story again. But uh, I just made a mistake, didn't I? I said it was Abraham, but actually it was Abraham. It was even Abraham, sorry, even before he became Abraham. And God said to him that his people would have 400 years of captivity and that God would bring them out with great possessions and they would judge the nation that holds them captive. And he names the people that will be displaced. So right from Abraham, there's a promise that though they go into captivity, they will come out. And that God will judge the nation, which we saw that go through the Red Sea, all the Israelites, or sorry, all the Egyptians were destroyed in, in the Red Sea. And they were going to come to land. God said he would give them the land. That's key. He would give them the land. Then if we look at when Moses was called. So remember Moses was in the desert and he saw a burning bush, a bush that didn't burn up. And God said to him, come and take your sandals off because this is holy ground. And this is what God said to Moses. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And, and so it goes on. Again, we, we get names of those people, those ites, they're going to be displaced. And it, he's told it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a bit of a strange uh, way to put it, isn't it? I always used to wonder about that as a, as a child. Still do to some degree. You know what a land flowing with milk and honey would be like. Very sticky and perhaps smelly if the milk went off. But there we go. It was a, a good land. Um, and that's just me being silly. So we had the deliverance from... The, from Egypt takes place and we know there's the whole thing of the Passover and the, the slaying of the, the firstborn in Egypt, the plagues, the, the traveling, the going through the Red Sea, the manna, all kinds of things happen till they come to this point where we're at now. This is the context of the spies going out and Moses sends the spies out to look at the land, to see what it's like. What's this land like that we're going to uh, take? And uh, the spies, after 40 days, so there's 40 days of spying, there's quite a lot of spying in anybody's book, go out and in Numbers 13 verse 26, the spies come back and they bring back some of the fruit of the land and they carry it on a big pole or, or kind of carrier thing and they show them the fruit and they said, indeed, the land does flow with milk and honey, all very excited stuff. But very quickly, there's a however. They say, however, the people who dwell there are strong. Cities are fortified and very strong. We saw the descendants of Anak. Now, Anak were um, giants, a tribe of giants. They say the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites, Amorites, sorry, in the hill country. Canaanites dwell by the sea. Hello? You've known since Abraham, you've known since the call of Moses that these people were there. You've been told that God would give you the land. That's just me putting that little bit in. That's not in the Bible. Caleb pipes up. Let us go up and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. We are well able to overcome it. But the other spies say, no, we are not able. They are stronger than us. And they brought a bad report. They say the land devours its inhabitants. The people are of a great height. And we saw the Nephilim. Really? The Nephilim, I mean, if you remember from Genesis 6, the Nephilim were the weird tribe of the, the gods and the a man, but surely they were destroyed in the flood. That was what the flood partly was all about. Anyway, putting that aside, I don't think they were the Nephilim. They were giants though. It said, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. It's interesting, this is a verse that people uh, preach on quite a lot, that we seem to ourselves as grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. But my question is, how did they know? 
How did they know that they seemed like grasshoppers to them? Did they talk to them? Probably not. It's a great psychological thing that if we see ourselves as small, other people will see ourselves as small, but I'm surprised that they would see them as grasshoppers because they would have heard the reports of God's people. They would be frightened of the Israelites because they knew the living God was among them. They maybe sense that the protection was removed because we see later on in the story, the second time they try and go in, that God removes the protection of the peoples and so that they're able to take the, the land. So that probably had happened in that place. So I don't think that that was necessarily uh, something that the people saw. The people that were there, the giants, were maybe afraid. What's going to happen? What are these Israelites going to do? You know, we're told, aren't we? Ezekiel's told when he's called not to fear their faces. And so often circumstances or people, situations, always look more dangerous, more difficult and treacherous than they are. Particularly if God has spoken to us and said, this is the case. We need to be very careful of situations, of people, of things that look opposite. And we think, whoa, it's opposite to what God says. Oh, it's never going to work because look at their faces. Look at how strong these people are. This is never going to happen. David, look at that giant. You're never going to be able to bring him down with that little stone. And, and yet we know the story. And so that's just a little heads up. We need to be careful of how we see situations and things. We need to be aware of what God is saying and trust him. But basically, the people rebel and they grumble against Moses and Aaron and they say, God's brought us here to die. And they say, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And some of you might know that Keith Green song about, so you want to go back to Egypt. Quite a classic song. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Why do you want to go back to Egypt? You were slaves. You were in slavery. You spent 400 years there trying to get out and now you're going to go back because you've seen a few giants in the land. The Bible says that Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and Josh and Caleb, Joshua, sorry, Josh is a bit weird, isn't it? Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes. And they said that Joshua and Caleb, who were spies, there were 12 spies, if you didn't realise, and 10 were dodgy and two were good. They said the land we passed through was exceedingly good land. A bit like Mr. Kipling land, exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed. So they're saying, if God delights in us, which they believed he did, he will give us the land. God had always said he would give them the land. He told them who was there, who they'd have to fight. Um, anyway, the congregation uh, took the side of the... the the spies, the ten spies, and it's interesting, sometimes it makes me smile, uh, things in the Bible. And so the congregation said, stone them with stones. You'd have thought that the second bit wasn't necessary, but stone them with stones. Um, anyway, that's just my silly humour. But it said the glory of God appeared. And God said, how long will this people despise me, not believe me, in spite of all the signs? I've done. And God's very angry. He said, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater, greater, sorry, and mightier. So God says, look, I'm going to get rid of this lot. I'm going to start again with you. But Moses intercedes and he says, Lord, the nations around us, they know you're amongst us. They'll say, you only killed us here because you weren't able to bring us into the land. And you know, that's why you killed them in the, um, in the wilderness. And I was just going to read Numbers 14 to 19. I haven't, um, well, Numbers 14, that's good. Sometimes when you have a, a Bible, you use your electronic Bible. It's hard to find things after a while. You, get, you forget where things are. But 17, um, he said, And now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven the people, of e people from Egypt until now. So Moses intercedes. He goes back to the nature and God says, God, you're a loving God. You're a, a faithful God. You're slow to anger. This is how God revealed himself to Moses uh, 
in, in uh, Exodus 33. And God says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men shall see the land I swore to give to their, to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. So God said, I'm going to destroy, uh, I'm going to send these people away, but Moses and, uh, sorry, but Caleb has got a different spirit and Joshua, they've got a different spirit. Uh, they will come into the land. And we see that um, they were sent into the wilderness. The, the ten spies that had brought a bad report immediately died in a plague. And the people were, were sent out. The ones that had grumbled, all the, all the people that grumbled, all the men over 20 would die in the wilderness. And that none should come into the land apart from Caleb and Joshua. So they had to go back into the wilderness. I, I, I can't imagine what that must have felt like for Caleb. And Joshua you know they had believed God they trusted God they believed that God would give them the land but uh, the people rebelled and turned back there's, there's a verse in Psalm 78 verse 9 which I read and are challenged by regularly it said the Ephraimites armed with a bow and in the Hebrew it says armed and shooting a bit like the Wild West you know armed and shooting turned back on the day of battle and that's not talking particularly about this instance, but it's like this instance, isn't it? They were um, armed and shooting. They were well able to take the land, but they turned back. And in verse 10 of Psalm 78, it says, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his laws. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. And then in verse 57, they twisted like a deceitful bow. But, but even, um, yeah, and then... What the people did then is they realised they'd blown it. And so they said, right, OK, we've blown it. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go and take the land now. So they uh, girded themselves up, you like, and they charged into the land. Charge! Let's take this land now. We're going to take this land. But unfortunately, they were totally defeated, smashed, annihilated, um, and went, were sent back with their tails between their legs. Caleb had said to them, let us go up and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. You know, God had always said to Abraham, I will give you the land. He said to Moses, I will give you the land. Um, and Caleb said, he will give us the land. There was a sense that God was giving them the land. They didn't have to uh, necessarily work for it and earn it. He was giving them, they had to go and fight the battles. But the, the, the battles were... A foregone conclusion that they would win, they would take the land because God had given it to them. The people had brought a bad report and they had to go back into the wilderness. You know, Caleb, it must have been, must have been horrendous for him. He had to get up every morning for 40 years. I mean, 40 years is a long time. I'm, I've been thinking back recently, um, I might mention a little while, 40 years, I've realised it's 40 years since I was baptised in November 1980. 40 years. 40 years is a long time to trudge around a desert with people who are moaning and murmuring, knowing that they could have been in the promised land, enjoyed the fruit of the promised land, but because of the, the unbelief of the people, um, they weren't able to. It was a long, hard road that they had to walk. And, and as I say, Caleb had to get up each morning Probably knowing Caleb, encouraging himself, saying, yes, God has said, I'm going to go into the land. Yes, God has said that he will give it to me. I'm going to believe him. Even though it's 40 years, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to go into the promised land. A bit like Mark exhorts us to do every week, doesn't he? And the, the sayings um, that he gives us. So that carried on until eventually, uh, to cut a long story short, as they say in the trade, they came to the edge of uh, the, the promised land for a second time in, in, um, in Joshua, Joshua 1. They come to the edge and, and there's things that go on there. And I'm not going to go into the, the Joshua 1 story. You can read those few, few stories for yourselves about how they take Jericho and um, 
all of those kind of things. But um, eventually it comes to the, the place where the tribe of Judah, which Caleb is a part, the tribe of praise, is coming to get their part of the inheritance. And I want to read um, some of this. I've thought about telling it, but I'm going to read it because um, I think it encapsulates it, like the Bible, it encapsulates it much e easier and doesn't miss things out, which I might do. And I'll just find my place. So this is reading from Joshua chapter 14. And I'm going to read from verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with him made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses. While Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am this day 85 years old. There's not many of us 85 years old, not even me, even though I'm getting a bit grey. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now, give me this hill country, of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave, him Heb gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kezanite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kirith Arba, Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. And I just want to read a little bit here. It says in 1513, According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kerith Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Heman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And, and then it carries on, which we might do in a minute. It's interesting. There's a few interesting things there just before Olive comes. But Hebron. <coughs> Hebron was an important place. I don't know if you know why, but Hebron was a place where Abraham was. He built an altar there. He buried his wife there. He was buried himself there. It was the land, if you like, the land of Abraham. Really the land of Abraham. The land of faith, the land of promise. He was getting you know, real kind of core, hardcore, Old Testament land, if you like. You know, the whole land was hardcore Old Testament land, but this was something special. This was Abraham's land, with all the heritage of believing God and it being counted as righteousness. Um, Caleb was made in the mould of, of Abraham. If you, there's a verse in the Bible that says, look to the rock from which you are hewn, to Abraham. Caleb was hewn of the rock of Abraham. He believed God. It said, and he, he, he got the land, and God said he had a different spirit. And it's interesting, because, you know, I was thinking, I think sometimes, almost think, Lord, give me a different spirit. We don't need a different spirit. We just need the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Caleb. He's the spirit in us that gives us the faith, the tenacity um, to, to take the land. And one more thing I want to say before Olive comes, is that the descendants of Anak, or Anakin, you know, it's not... Um, Skywalker, it's not stop Star Wars, but it, it is these, um, these three descendants, and it's the same descendants there, those three, uh, just remind me of themselves of the names, the names are um, uh, Sheshai, Ahim, and Talmai, very, they're the same people that were there in the first place, you know the, the Israelites wet their pants over the sons of Anak, um, they were frightened of them. That's part of the reason. That's really the reason they didn't go into the land. They were scared of them. But 
what struck me was, when they came back after 40, 45 years, they were still there. They still need to be taken. They still need to be defeated. Yet Caleb sorted them out, got rid of them. And it strikes me, you know, one of the things I wanted to say is God wants us to be people of faith, people who believe him, people that say, Lord, give me the hill country. And, you know, when we go into an inheritance, when we go into something that God's giving, there's often giants in the land. There's often circumstances, people, situations, whatever, that we have to tackle. And sometimes we can run away and we can kind of go away and think, well, I, I, I'm not going to bother. And then we, then we come back thinking, well, maybe I should go back and, and take hold of what God said. The same giants will still be there. We still need to tackle them. Um, the, the, God wants us to go through things, through situations, deal with situations. He won't think, okay, poor old Caleb. Um, in the meantime, I'll send a little worm or a maggot or something and they'll destroy these sons of Anak. And they won't be there. And so it'll just be easy peasy, lemon squeezy for Caleb. It wasn't easy peasy, lemon squeezy. He had to go in and sort out those people that frightened the whole nation. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you on two things. I want to challenge you. What is the hill country that God wants you to possess? What are you saying or what is God saying to you that this is the hill country to possess? And then what are the giants that are in the land? He wants you to, to rise up now, to take that hill country, that inheritance that's, that belongs to you, that you haven't taken hold of, whatever it is. I'm not saying what it is. Maybe you need to ask him, Lord, what do you want me to come into now? I was encouraging the prayer meeting of the week and, and sometimes the prayer, people in the prayer meeting are a little bit older than, you know, than 17, saying, look, all of us, whether we're 80 odd or 60 odd or 70 odd, we've still got land we can take. And there's land we can take, but there's giants there. And if we believe God, God will deal with those giants, but we will have to deal with them. We can't get round them. We can't think, oh, I'll go and live in the lands and put up with the giants. No, they'll wallop you. You know, they will sort you out. But in the grace of God, as we go through, as we tackle things, we can deal with those giants and come into the land that God has got for us. So let me just pray. Father, I thank you that you have an inheritance for all of us, some of which we will have taken, some of which we may still to take. Lord, I pray you show us our hill country that you want us to take at this time, that you'll show us the giants that are in the land, but show us also that in you we are more than conquerors, we have been given the victory, and as we walk towards them, they will flee. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. Olive, we're going to... Okay, so we're doing a bit of a different sort of rollout today. So if you imagine Roger's the bread of the sandwich, I'm the filling in the middle. So Roger's done his first piece of bread, and I'm going to do a bit of filling, and then Roger's going to come back and finish off for us. Um, so Roger was saying earlier in the week that this is what he thought he was um, going to speak about. And I just took, took it to God and said, so God, what do you, what do you want me to bring? What, what is it? Is there something you want me to bring to add to it? And I felt directed to one verse in the New Testament, which I'm going to read in a minute for you. Um, but I want to just put it in the context um, in which you find it. Um, it's a very famous verse. You'll all know it and probably you all could quote it if I said to you now the, the, the chapter and verse. Um, but I, it's gonna, it fits so nicely in with the story of Caleb. Um, and we want to be like Caleb, don't we, who have that different spirit, the spirit of God in us, um, that spirit that follows wholeheartedly after God. And that even if we have to spend 45 years holding on for that promise, we're found faithful so that in the end we inherit that which God has promised for us. Um, so the, the verse that I felt God gave me to share this morning is Hebrews 12 verse 1. And for those of you that know your Bibles will know that Hebrews 12 verse 1 follows Hebrews 11, obviously, like the stones. Um, but... Hebrews 11, if you recall, is the chapter which talks about all the great heroes of faith. It talks about many, many people that we read about in our Old Testament that had a promise from God, that had to often really hold on for a long time, often had a struggle to see that promise fulfilled, but that actually eventually they were all um, commended by God for being people of faith. And it talks as well about some of them didn't even see it and that none of them had seen the fullness of what was to come through Jesus. And so I want to read this verse and then just pull out a few things 
for, for us about that, about what we do, uh, again, when we're just waiting and looking to God, about how we can keep encouraging ourselves to holding on to seeing the promises of God fulfilled in our life. So Hebrews 12, verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, says this. Well, actually, I'm going to change one or two words from some, an old version, version as well. Mixing, mixing my versions. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, this is where I'm changing a bit, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you haven't yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And as I was just praying and meditating on this verse, I felt there were a few things that, that God wanted to encourage us with this morning from this verse. Um, and again, it links in, as I said, so nicely. So Caleb's not listed in that list of heroes of faith, but clearly he wasn't one that could have been. So the first thing that I felt that we need to remind ourselves of this morning is that we're in a race. Um, and actually, when you look at that word in the, in the Greek, um, as Mark so often does and helps us to do, it doesn't, it, the word actually has a, more of a meaning than race than you or I would think of. So I don't know about you, but if I hear the word race, I think about running. Um, I might think of a sprint or I might think of a middle distance or more often perhaps in this passage, I'll think of a marathon race, something that's gonna go on for a long time. And there is that element of that in this verse. But the races that were often talked about in those early Greek athletic contests were actually much more of a contest so the word actually carries this whole thing about a contest and a struggle um, and, and a battle. And I think that's really interesting, isn't it? That we should realize that, that this life that we're called to, this life of faith that by the grace of God we've entered into, um, it is, is often a contest and a battle, may even be a struggle at times. It's not just an easy thing. It's, it's more than just a little, little jog in the park. <laughs> not that I'm a runner anyway. Um, but if you think about those early Greek athletes, they would give their lives, their whole lives were very disciplined in order to be those really good competitors. If they wanted to win their race, they had to be very disciplined in the way they lived their life. And they had to train and they had to watch what they ate and they had to really dedicate themselves to it. And I think that's the first thing that we need to be encouraged by today, that we rec recognise that our journey is a journey, or a race, that, it, that does take our, our whole life. It takes our whole attention. It takes our whole focus. It takes our whole commitment. And that's a bit like what Caleb was recognised for, wasn't it? It said that he wholly followed after God. And if you or I want to run this race of faith in a way that pleases God, then we have to do the same. We have to run it wholeheartedly with full commitment and not just thinking it's just a little jog in the park. It needs our full attention, our full commitment. And that's why it goes on to tell us that we should lay aside every weight. So the athletes in the early days would have taken up their robes, which were long in those days, weren't they? And threaded them through their, their clothes so that they weren't going to trip over them. They would have got rid of excess baggage that they didn't need to carry, that they didn't need to be carrying. And we all know, don't we, that athletes will eat a really good diet so they're not carrying excess weight like some of us might be. Um, so they weren't carrying any excess weight. And that's what the um, writer to the Hebrews tells us that we need to be like too, that we need to make sure that we get rid of, lay aside, put down any excess weight that might hinder us. And I was just thinking about like what excess weight we, might we sometimes carry. And it could be that we, we carry thoughts about ourselves that aren't right and we need to get lay those aside and see ourselves as God sees us it could be and I wonder how like how Caleb managed this that we carry bitterness you know he could so could have been bitter about all those people of his generation that didn't follow God which meant he had to wander aimlessly for 40 years in a desert instead of taking the land like Roger said he could have been bitter about that but he wasn't but I wonder about us, I wonder if some of us are carrying some roots of bitterness around that are weighing us down and stopping us from achieving what God wants us to achieve and entering into the land of promise that he has for us. Or what, are, what else? Why don't you ask the Holy Spirit as you go into the rest of today, are there any weights 
that are hindering my progress of faith, that are hindering me in my journey this morning or at the moment. And then ask him to help you to lay those aside because we don't want anything to be stopping us from running this race that we need to be running. So laying aside every weight. And then it tells us to also lay aside the sin that clings to us so, so closely. And in some version it says that so easily entangles us. And I like that imagery. Um, I don't know if you've ever walked through um, ground where there's twigs and weeds and, and maybe even roots of trees and it's so easy to get entangled, isn't it? That's the kind of picture that comes up to my mind. And it tells us that, that we should be careful not to get entangled by sin um, if we want to run this race that God has called us for. And there will be things, won't there, that are, are, are vulnerable points for all of us. And doesn't Satan know how to find those points for us? And I've been on this journey long enough to know that there are things that have been weaknesses in me that I know Satan will come and try and tempt me or to, to lay before me. And I've learned to say, no, Satan, that's not who I am now. You get behind me. And that's what the Bible teaches us to do with Satan, to resist him and to see, see him flee from us, tell him to get behind us. So there will be things that we're all prone to. It might be pride. It might be laziness. It might be poor self-image. It might be doubt. It might be fear. There's all sorts of things that we can all be a bit prone to. And, and it's, we need the spirit to show us those things so that we can be on our guard and allow the opposite spirit, the spirit of what Jesus says about us, to be the thought that ca carries on in our minds. So instead of fear, we have faith. Instead of doubt, we have belief. Instead of um, anxiety and worry, we have trust. And all of those things that we, we know that are our inheritance in Jesus that we can come to. But of course, the biggest sin is unbelief, isn't it? You know, that it tells that Jesus tells us in John that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. But when it goes on to explain what that sin is, it says, because they didn't believe in me, Jesus. Um, so it's really important, isn't it, that we lay aside that sin of unbelief. A bit like Caleb and Joshua did in the story that Roger's been telling us. They laid aside unbelief and they held on to what they believed God had promised. That God has said he'll give us this land. That's what we're believing. We're not looking with our eyes at those giants or those fearful cities. We're looking at what the promise of God is. And if we want to run this race successfully, then that's what we need to do. We need to um, lay aside any doubt and any unbelief and keep our eyes on the promise that Jesus has got. Um, so that we can come into that place. We need to believe Jesus and believe his word. Then it tells us to run with endurance and pretty much what Caleb had to do for 45 years, he had to keep enduring through all that time, holding on to that promise of God, holding on to that word of God, holding on to what he knew that was going to be his inheritance one day because it had been spoken over him. And that's what we need to do. It's not a quick job, it's not an easy contest. It, we're in for the long haul. Um, and if we're going to manage that, we need to have patience and faithfulness and steadfastness and determine before we out, set, set out that we're going to stick it out to the very end um, and keep going even when it's tough. So endurance is another thing that we need. And then it says, run the race set before us. And I think it's really important to realise that even though we're all in this one race in a way that's the same, it's the race of faith, the journey of faith, and we're all headed to our same eternal destiny, the fact is each of our individual journeys and races will look different to one another's. And it's no good us comparing whether what my race looks like compared to someone else's race, or why that person's race looks really easy and my race seems really hard. Who are we to judge that? We're not, because we don't know, do we, what another person is going through. And the important thing to realise is that God knows exactly the race that we need to run. He knows exactly what we need to um, go through in our lives and how he's going to be with us and help us through all of the things that life um, throws at us, all the circumstances that we walk through. He has promised to never leave us alone. So if your race takes you through some stuff, you know God is with you. My race might not take me through that same stuff, but it might take me through some other stuff. And God is with me and has promised to be my strength and my helper in those things that I'm going through. So let's not worry. Let's not get concerned about what someone else's race looks like. But let's determine in our hearts that we'll run the race that is set before us um, with that endurance, being faithful to that which God calls us to. And then finally, we have an advantage that Caleb didn't have because we have Jesus. <laughs> we're the other side of the cross. And it says in the end of this verse that if we're tempted to give up, we should remember Jesus. Um, so we remember, first of all, that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. So in other words, our faith isn't about us. 
It was birthed because of what Jesus has done and he perfects it as we yield to him and obey him and do as he asks of us. So we keep going if we fix our eyes on him, not on our circumstances, not on ourselves, but on him. So my first encouragement from that bit is if you feel yourself a bit drifting from that or tempted to give up, then refocus your eyes onto Jesus. Refocus your eyes onto Jesus. And then it tells us that if we're feeling a bit faint and weary, we should consider Jesus and what he endured. <laughs> um, he endured clearly so much more than you or I ever could, not just in his physical suffering, which was intense and beyond what you or I could imagine. And some people have had to endure similar um, physical affliction for their faith. But Jesus, of course, carried a whole nother level because he bore the sin of the world. He became sin. Nobody else in all of um, eternity has ever done that. What Jesus endured was far more than any human has ever had to or ever will have to endure. Therefore, if we feel weary or feel like it's all too much, then we're encouraged to consider Jesus and what he endured because it was so much more. And how did Jesus do that? Well, he did it by considering the joy that was before him. And then he also counted the cross, as it says it counted, he counted the cross as a shame, he disregarded it. In other words, he looked at what this big obstacle in front of him was, and even though it was huge and intense, and he, he as we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he battled with his father around it, but he still went through with it because he knew it was the will of the father. And he despised it, counted it as nothing for the sake of the joy that was before him. And so we can be like Jesus too, can't we? And for the sake of the joy that is before us, what we are going to inherit as children of the King when Jesus returns, um, there's so much for us to look forward to. So I wanna just encourage you before Roger comes back to conclude um, the second part of the story he's going to tell us and to, to challenge us with some more things, that if you're feeling like you're in your 45 years, like Caleb was, of wandering around the wilderness and not yet seeing what God has promised for you to see, then keep going. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, um, and run with endurance the race that's set before you. Thank you. Cool, thank you, that's really good. Thank you, well, there's a little bit more to the story that I wanted to just uh, look at and think about and challenge us of. Uh, it's in Joshua 15. And after he'd taken, after Caleb had taken Hebron and chased out the Anakites, um, he came to a place called, uh, I'm looking at verse 15, and he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir, or Debir, whatever it says. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him will I give Aksa, my daughter's wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenes, the broad the brother of Caleb captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter's wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And just... Uh, one or two things that's, well, one thing that struck me and then something I want to challenge us on is that because Caleb was a man of faith and he walked in faith and he took the land, it enabled others to do the same. It enabled this guy, Othniel, um, to, to take the next city and to gain himself a wife who happened to be Caleb's daughter. Now, you might not like the thought of him giving his daughter to someone, but um, that's the story. And... Um, it just struck me that if we, as people, as fathers, as, as individuals, are prepared to walk in what God has got for us, we enable others who follow behind us, whether in our family or not our family, to do the same. And it's interesting, I just want to pick up, because I was just preparing, I hadn't intended to go this way, but it just struck me that, firstly, that uh, this daughter of Caleb called Aksa, who, who encouraged her uh, new husband to ask for a field he was given Negev which is desert she said to her father give me also springs of water we used to sing a song when uh, 40 years ago it was 
Uh, from Songs of Victory, Lord give me also springs of water. Sing it for ages, one of those songs that once you started you couldn't stop. But the whole thing about give me springs of water. We sometimes joke that the Bible's made up of lots of old songs that as you read along suddenly you find another one. But obviously of course the songs are written from the Bible. But it's good to be singing scripture anyway. But it just struck me that obviously if he's got desert land, he's going to need water. And I thought to the words of I thought to the words of Jesus in a couple of places, um, in John four, to the woman at the well. Um, I'm just trying to find it. John four. Sorry, it's getting a little bit dark here. Um, John four. I haven't got my notes in front of me, so this is really, really rude. It said, um, "If you knew the gift of God." And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then again, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. And then in John 7:37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I just felt to challenge us about the Holy Spirit. A lot of us have been baptised in the Spirit. A lot of us have been filled with the Spirit. A lot of us have moved in the Spirit. And that's great. But I challenge you that there's a whole element to our birthright that we sometimes neglect. That we are to be full of the Spirit and to continually being full of, full of the Spirit. I think the, the Greek in one um, place says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I was struck when I was a, a, a young man, I, I'm not one of these people who can tell you when I got saved, you know, date and, and time and all this kind of thing. Um, it was sometime in my teens. But I also remember in my teens that I went to a meeting, a service at the church, where, opposite where I used to live, and they talked about the Holy Spirit. This guy was talking about the Holy Spirit. And I think by then I had been singing in a come together choir and I put my hands up lots of times to give my life to Jesus. So I think I was a Christian then. I, I obviously was a Christian actually from what happened. But um, this guy talked about the Holy Spirit and said that if you ask, you'll receive and you'll speak in tongues. And I remember going home and lying in bed and I asked for the Holy Spirit and I began to speak out some words. But immediately I thought, oh no, that's not right. And I just shelved it completely. And then through my later teens, I didn't actually walk with God very, well, no, I didn't walk with God. I was going to say very closely, but not at all, really. I was religious, <coughs> went to meetings um, and things, but far from God. And it wasn't until um, in my 20th year, I suppose, I suddenly started to realise that it wasn't right. There was a thunderstorm one night and I woke up like a shock thinking that Jesus had returned, that I'd missed it. And I knew I wasn't right. And so I started to, to, to get myself back with God. And I remember going back to college. I was um, at Canterbury. There was a, it was a collegiate system. that I was, I was in one of the colleges, one of four. And, and the college I was in was a bit spiritually dead, although I was sort of involved with the CU. And amazingly, quite a few Christians came to, uh, in, the, in their first year, came to college. I was a third year. And I remember sitting around singing choruses on a Sunday afternoon thinking this is really good you know and, and then all of a sudden this girl said to me uh, something like I can't remember exactly what she said but said what do you think about tongues or what do you think about, about the spirit something like that and I went oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just dismissed it and I thought oh she's a bit of a troublemaker better not um, you know talk to her again but it's interesting the next day I suddenly began to remember this time in my teens when I asked for the Holy Spirit and then spoke some words and then shelved it. And I was kind of pondering it as you do. And then all of a sudden, uh, a friend of mine who lived off campus came and said, hey, Raj, do you want to come uh, to tea? And I knew he was baptised in the Spirit. So I talked to him and I explained what had happened. And he said to me, yeah, it sounds like you were baptised in the Spirit, but you've neglected it. You need to repent and ask for it again, which is what he did and uh, started to speak, speak in tongues and it was it was kind of um, difficult at first because because I'd shelved it the first time it's a bit like the spies because I'd put it off 
you know, I had to face that again. And, you know, I've been meeting, thinking, oh, this guy next to me is going to think, uh, you know, got to suddenly say, hey, you're, you're speaking in tongues, but it's not right. You know, it's, uh, you know, there were stories in the 80s about, you know, people speaking tongues, but they were cursing in Chinese and all that kind of silly stuff that, that went around. So, you know, there were fears. Um, <clears throat> but despite that, I came through that. But things happened in the college I was at, which had been quite dead. All of a sudden, people were getting saved and baptized in spirit. And then I went on from there to Norwich and worked in the YMCA. And things happened there as well. People were getting saved, youngsters getting saved from quite difficult backgrounds. And it was really good. And what struck me is that uh, baptism of the Spirit is something we all need to receive and be able to speak in tongues. We need to ask for it and receive it. But it's not like a badge of honour that we've received, put it on there now. I've, you know, like you see these guys, all these, these medals, you know, you wonder where they get them all from, particularly royalty. They've got about 300 medals. You think, gosh, you seem to have got some medals from somewhere. Um, but anyway, it's not like a badge like that. But it's something that I need to walk in day by day. And the promise is, that um, if I believe I can have the spirit flowing through me, like uh, a, a I think it's just a spring of water, doesn't it? Uh, it, it, it Jesus says that it's like uh, rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. Mark talked the other week about uh, people going through the valley of uh, Baca, making it, a, making, it a, making it a spring, making it a, a place of life. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be full of the Spirit day by day. Sons of fresh oil. It's interesting, I was thinking, that was on my, my mind to, um, to, to, that was on my mind, I was thinking, Lord, I want to be a son of fresh oil. And then uh, June gave me the scripture from uh, Psalm, 80, Psalm 92, verse 10, about anointing and being a son of fresh oil. That's what we are to be, sons of fresh oil. That wherever we go, the Spirit goes with us. Where we go into desert land, the desert comes alive. We bear fruit wherever we are. We're not waiting for the rain. It's great when, when the Spirit comes and it rains, but we don't need to wait for the rain. We have a spring inside us that will bring life around us. I was thinking of Ezekiel's river. It says Ezekiel's river flows from the uh, sanctuary and gets deeper as it goes. But alongside it, there's trees that have leaves that are for the healing of the nations, that bear fruit every month. And we're to be like trees planted by streams of living water. I'm changing, it's changing the analogy a little bit, but that streams of living water. We are to be those who bring life, those to bring healing, those to bring a sense of presence, even in the desert, even in places which are dry and arid. So let me challenge you to, uh, to, to be refreshed in your understanding of the Spirit, be refreshed in your receiving of the Spirit, to actively stir up the Holy Spirit day by day so that you can have those streams of water flowing from your being. I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would be those who firstly come into the inheritance that you have for us, but particularly the inheritance of the Holy Spirit being like a river flowing from our bellies. Lord, help us to look to you, that we would be filled every day, that from our bellies would flow rivers of living water, that will bring life all around us. That's what you want. You said that Jesus, that Joseph is a fruitful vine. We are a fruitful vine because we're in the vine, which is Jesus. The sap flows through us, the spirit flows through us, brings life to all around, produces fruit in our lives. So Lord, I pray, help us to be those who bring fruit wherever we go. So thank you for watching. I trust that you've enjoyed your time with us. If you would like to know more about what we've said or share testimonies, please get in touch with us via office at faithlifechurch.org.uk and someone will be back to you there. But have a good day, the rest of the day and a good week and God bless you. Goodbye.